0: welcome to another episode of acts of the blood god us gamers official rpg podcast i'm your host cat bailey and joining me as always is my lovely co-host nadia oxford
1: hello cat how have you
0: been i'm doing just fine because we have a new member of the us gamer family here on the show that is eric van allen yay
2: hi hi hello i'm eric on acts of the blood god for the very first time
0: well, the blood god welcomes you, Eric. Eric, of course, is our new news editor, and I wanted to give him a chance to say hello here. Eric, you are a host of a Mass Effect podcast.
2: Yes, I am. It's it's called a uh, Normandy FM, where one wonderful Kenneth Shepard and I go through uh, the history of Mass Effect, all the ups and downs, uh, kind of looking at it in, let's say, a modern lens. And it's it's a radical time. It's it's just great.
0: Cool, we will going to give you a chance to introduce yourself a little more in just a moment. We're also going to be talking about the Final Fantasy VII Remake trailer that dropped yesterday, and perhaps ranting about it just a <laughs> little bit. <laughs> and also we'll be reviewing Detective Pikachu, which will be a lot of fun.
1: I made Nadia go and see it last night. Well, you didn't, like, make me so much as you suggested I should, and you didn't really have to twist my arm too much. It was more like... I was like, I think I'm going to review
0: Detective Pikachu. And Nadia was like, I'm going to go see it. I'm like, you don't have to. You're like, I'm going to go see it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Pretty much. It's like, what if you like, what if I get spoiled? Oh, no. You can, of course, reach me at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. If you want to comment with your own thoughts of Detective Pikachu, you can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia at Nadia Oxford. And Eric, what's your Twitter handle?
2: I am at CMOOSI. That's S-E-A-M-O-O-S-I.
0: If you're enjoying the podcast, I strongly recommend that you leave a review. It helps our visibility and, you know, it makes us feel good because we work pretty hard on this podcast and we like hearing from the people who like the show. And uh, if you want to reach us, you can send an email to the aforementioned email. You can send me a DM on Twitter. My DMs are open at the underscore catbot or leave a comment on our show notes over at usgamer.net. Okay, so Eric, what got you into Mass Effect?
2: I remember reading a an excerpt. I, I want to say it was in some random game magazine. I'm not just obfuscating the name to not like boost other people's publications on this podcast. <laughs> I can't remember which one it was. Uh, but I remember reading that Mass Effect was the next thing in gaming, and I had to play. It was actually fun fact: the first time I uh, tried to buy an M-rated game by myself, and the uh, Target store clerk made me come back with my mother Aww. to buy the game. You young people, less. <laughs> and, and this was this was mid uh, outrage over it because it was the the video game where the alien butts are in the.
1: Oh <laughs> spot. yeah, that oh, controversy. Man. Sex box. That was a
2: fun conversation with mom. Uh, <laughs> mom, <laughs> so,
0: mom I, can, I, can I buy sex the sex box game?
2: <laughs> I'm, bu- I'm buying the the Alien Butt game. It's 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 a good game, mom. I promise. <laughs> uh, but Mass Effect One definitely grabbed me. But it was Mass Effect Two that uh, when I every time I do my top games of all time, uh, Mass Effect Two is one of the three that jumps around that top spot, and uh, it's it's something that's so effortlessly. Like effortlessly combines different things. I love about video games. It's got incredible conversations and choices and dialogue. The writing is really good. It still mostly holds up even today. Uh, the the action is incredibly well paced, and each class. I, we talked a lot about combat in our retrospective because there's something about playing a vanguard shepherd with a shotgun that has never been replicated in any other video game like that feeling of charging and then blasting with the shotgun they nailed it in mass effect 2 it's it's perfect and there is absolutely nothing else like it and all the other classes have their own different twists that add different things to it but it's just it's still a phenomenal game the fact that it holds up so well years later has only like reinforced that in my mind that it's just there's almost nothing else like it out there.
0: See, Nadia, it just goes to show, see, Eric really likes fighting games and competitive games, games you wouldn't normally
1: associate with the RPG space, but there's an RPG for everybody. There really is. RPGs are for everybody. And uh, the Blood God is for everybody.
0: Hail the Blood God. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so uh, Mass Effect is on our top 25 RPG countdown list, and we have a huge amount of admiration for that game. Obviously, on our end, um, one thing that I'm kind of curious about is what's your canon relationship?
2: <laughs> oh boy, um, it's it's usually Liara, uh, <laughs> of course, because I feel like thematically that makes the most sense. Is you know she's so tied to the a plot of both Mass Effect One and Mass Effect Three that that just makes sense. Uh, but here's the weird part: while I think that the Liara relationship for Shepard is the most sensical and makes the most sense with the plot is usually the one i do tally is probably my favorite character in mass effect uh she is just the coolest character her arc is really cool you don't like you have to go back to mass effect one and realize like how much she has grown from being this very reclusive Korian with um almost the same ideas that ashley has about other alien races Corian, like uh tur- I'm so nailing all the alien race names right now. Uh, Tally has those same feelings, uh, that sort of like xenophobia that starts to fall away, especially towards the geth and, and the things that happen with Legion are so good. It's, she is such an incredible character, but I don't romance her, A, because it doesn't let female shepherds romance Tally, which is a crime, but also uh, the Tally Garrus relationship that happens in Mass Effect 3 is so nice that I'm just like, you know what? Two favorite characters, Y'all are great. Go have fun. I'm good.
0: <laughs> so another question that I have for you, Mass Effect 1, 2, or 3?
2: Oh, 2. two. Um, my, my co-host will get really mad at me uh, saying this because a large amount of the reason that we started Normandy FM was because he was trying to convince me that Mass Effect 3 is the better game. Uh, but replaying Mass Effect 2 has only cemented in my mind that that game is the best one, even though Mass Effect 3 does have really incredible moments in it. There's just something about that dirty dozen seven samurai setup of them going into the suicide mission and not knowing who's going to come back out. And that, that feeling there's so many good themes in that game. It's so tightly written and cohesive compared to like the really big arcs of the Reaper fights that happen in, in one and three that it's mass effect two is just an incredible standalone game, not just as part of the series.
0: And where do you stand on the ending?
2: Hmm. I think that the ending got more guff than it deserved. I think uh, that it was fine and is possibly even satisfactory to some extent now with all the things they added after all the outrage. But I'm feeling the way about Mass Effect that I currently feel about Game of Thrones, which is that there is no satisfactory ending to the story. It wrote itself into a hole and it just (laughs) has to end in some way and there is very little chance of that ever coming out in a satisfactory way you see it even with lord of the rings that there are still people who are like why didn't they just fly the eagles in the morning of course (laughs) like that so i don't think there's a way to end that series that's going to make everybody happy so they just try and end it in a way that can try to follow some logic and then give you things like citadel where that gives you the fan service and that feeling of like warmness that you want out of the ending
0: and do you like any other rpgs
2: oh yeah i mean i talked i said earlier that there are like three games that bounce around in my top spot for top games of all time and that's mass effect 2 final fantasy 10 and the world ends with you uh all of which are no,
1: you get along with katie yeah <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, I love Final Fantasy X. Uh, I, I was telling Cat I think before the podcast started that this uh, Final Fantasy X was kind of my gateway into understanding RPGs and into understanding like what they were and what they could do. Um, I love, I love that. I love the world ends with you. It's such a unique style. It's such a unique gameplay. Uh, the characters and the writing is are, are just so good. And uh, also probably in my top ten would be Fire Emblem Awakening. Because uh, I love the Fire Emblem series, and I think Awakening is it was a good game. Uh, one of one of the best, but also like a huge turning point that really added so much to the series. I would say like Path of Radiance is also probably one of my favorites from the series. Uh,
0: Huzzah, but, Nadia! We got another Fire Emblem fan on the team! Just in time, my, too.
2: My last one is kind of a weird one. I really like the Tales games. Uh, Tales of Symphonia is definitely in my top 10. I also really like Tales of Berseria, which is the most recent one. Uh, And Tales of Vesperia. is. I've been playing through that again on Switch and loving it. Uh, That probably stems a little bit from my enjoyment of fighting games, but also the stories in those games are very, very good. I think they do really interesting things with... The setup and deconstruction of what you expect from those stories, and some of the better ones, and some of them do get formulaic, but uh, Symphonia, Vesperia, and Bruiseria are all very, very, very good.
0: Some of our readers probably, undoubtedly, just did a, a little fist pump.
1: Yeah, it's a little cartwheel, because <laughs> we don't really talk about tales here too much. We haven't
0: talked. We haven't talked to the ta- oh, about the tales so, games too much on this
2: pod. So good. They're. Uh, Vesperia on Switch, I if you need a JRPG on your Switch, I mean, sorry, forget Octopath. Just go check out <laughs> Tales of Vesperia. Just Those are like fighting that.
0: words. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Well, we're going to have to do a Tales re- retrospective now. So, Yeah, apparently.
2: First day, I'm already assigned something. Ugh. Not, Not even your first ready. day yet? I know. Well, day zero. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What's your take on the Final Fantasy VII Remake trailer?
2: So as I said, ten was where I really got into RPGs. Uh, I had a friend who had a PlayStation and a Dreamcast when I was younger. I would go to his place. That was actually my introduction to RPGs in general. I I would sit there and we would rent games from Blockbuster and he would trick me into agreeing with him that we should rent games that were single player. So um, (laughs) I I ended up watching him play through things like Final Fantasy VII and... Uh, Grandia and Lunar and I was always like oh this is dumb it's single player we can't play this together why'd we do this and I never got into it so I never had the nostalgia for 7 that I think a lot of people did when it was their introduction to RPGs for a lot of people or even if it was not your first RPG there was still this air of magic to it now like going back it's, it's the same way I feel going back to a lot of games that were considered like incredible in their time that I'm like I i don't have the context of the era for it that being said um i am a sometimes uh, erstwhile final fantasy 15 defender uh, in that i think there was something there and if it had not been worked on for literally what a decade and uh added so many random gameplay things into it that it could have been something really special uh so i am excited that like at the prospect of them taking those systems and those ideas and then applying it to a story that's cohesive and mm-hmm. uh coherent kind of uh, but all that said uh I do understand that there are a lot of people that have nostalgia for what Final Fantasy 7 was and it raises a lot of interesting questions about like whether you can do a game like that in 2019 and what that looks like. You know, can you have that like active time battle system? Would you want to skew more towards something like Final Fantasy 13 that mixes active time battle with an action game? And it's it's all very interesting questions. That I'm sure y'all are going to go very in depth on. But my feeling is basically just, yeah, I'll play this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, well, Eric will be writing news over on U.S. Gamers. You'll be seeing his byline quite a bit. And Eric will have to have you back on the show to talk about all those wonderful games that you just talked about because um, certainly we could stand to talk a little more about Final Fantasy X on this pod. I don't feel like we've ever really talked about it in much depths in the past and also the Tales games. So. Definitely
2: the Tales games, yeah. Yeah. I do want to shout out real quick. There is a speedrunning event going on that goes on every year called RPG Limit Break, which is a speedrunning event for just RPGs. Uh I think tonight is when they're doing their final fantasy 10 speed run it is 10 hours long and it is a masterpiece <laughs> for a while i was trying to figure out how to speed run final fantasy 10 and it's amazing the stuff they get into so uh, like, i highly recommend checking that stuff out as well if, if you really want to see like some mechanical breakdowns of rpgs and things like that
0: yeah this podcast will be up by the time that it's over but oh
2: you're right you're right i always forget the that last
0: one. i checked it was up to a little over a hundred thousand dollars out of its one hundred fifty thousand dollar goals so hopefully it makes yeah. it yeah
2: yeah it's it's a cool thing that happens every year that i love tuning into and the final fantasy X speed run just made me love that game even more because mastering that sphere grid is is just a blast i love the sphere grid
0: T I L I i hired a final fantasy X lover that's amazing <laughs> to me
2: and a green bay packer fan
0: every time you mention that man i just want to fire you like, immediately. <laughs> all right uh once again eric where can people reach you if they want to uh, talk to you
2: for right now it's just going to be my twitter which is uh at c that's s-e-a-m-o-o-s-i uh you can reach out at me holler at me on twitter tell me that Tails is bad i will tell you that you're bad because Tails is a masterpiece <laughs> it's, it's art it's pure art
0: all right Eric, thanks very much, and we'll be seeing you around on US Gamer. All right, thanks to Eric for coming on the show, and like I said, you can go find him on US Gamer as of the launch of this podcast. Okay. In the meantime, Nadia, you posted a breakdown analysis of the Final Fantasy VII Remake trailer, which went up last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know i gotta say i'm really surprised that that final fantasy 7 remake trailer actually came along um i've been hearing rumblings uh that final fantasy 7 remake is kind of being fast tracked and that it's on its way and that we might be seeing it as early as next year or early next wow. year but i guess i didn't really expect it you know like i kind of thought well there was always a little bit of doubt in my heart as it were
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, it was, it's one of those things where it's really regulated to the back of your mind. Like, Final Fantasy VII Remake exists. Well, kind of. We don't know for sure. But, uh, yeah, the, to use a cliche, the proof is in the pudding. And if they're saying, oh, we'll have lots more in June, which of course is E3, uh, they might actually be somewhere close to giving, being able to give us something that we can play. It still is going to be episodic. So we're looking at maybe, the entire uh, Midgard chapter, if that, but at least it'll be something.
0: I've heard so much speculation that when Final Fantasy VII Remake comes out, it will be, surprise, the full game. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure about that. What do you think? Episode one, and then Epis-
1: episode two will be <laughs> follow-ups and that kind of thing. Hmm, that's, uh, I still think my my theory is, is probably the most sound, where uh, you're going to get Midgar and then the rest of it. It makes the most sense to split it
0: up where, I mean, wouldn't you say that it makes the most sense that part one ends with you leaving Midgar? I would say so, yes. Or ending part one with uh, Sephiroth walking into the fire in Nibelheim.
1: Oh, I was going to say, my guess would be like uh, the end of disc one in the original PlayStation, Eris' death, essentially.
0: Yeah, spoilers. Which, by the way, we should probably be more circumspect about spoilers now with Final Fantasy VII because there might be an entire generation of people who are playing for the first time.
1: It's just—it just seems to me that like Eris's death is, is such a cultural thing by now that like if you if you don't know she dies, you, you live in a cave on Mars with your fingers in your ears. So it's one of those things where it's like Rosebud was also the sled. Exactly. It is. Well, they, we are still looking for our Citizen Kane of video games, quote unquote. Uh, there's part of it. It, We can say Eris is our Rosebud. Oh my god. Or
0: Eris is our Darth Vader is your father moment. Yeah. Spoiler alert.
1: Darth Vader is the father. Would you say she's the Dumbledore yet? Dumbledore dies. Oh my god. Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) Oh come on. How old is that one? Oh more than
0: a decade at this point. And yeah uh, Snape killing Dumbledore is like one of the one of the spoilers of our generation, right? It, it so very much It is, is the talking. Luke of our... Luke
1: is... Luke, I am your father, spoiler of our generation. I wonder if, like... I've seen videos of people, like, getting on, like, the intercom over, like, Walmart and saying, attention, children, and announcing that Dumbledore dies, and uh, I wonder Who if anyone did that. that. <laughs> Assholes? Really sad people, I Really think. sad people. I actually... I showed you
0: just uh, a few minutes people ago. People were posting... People were posting videos of them driving around in parking lots and uh, and sh- shouting it to people
1: waiting in line to get the book. And it's like, really? Yeah, I remember you those. You just want to make people miserable? That's what you want to do? Okay. Oh, yeah. They want to they make people miserable and, and film it for cred. But, like, I, I showed you that, um, that image of a friend of the show, Johnny uh, Barnstorm, who uh, said when he was a kid and he got, like, Final Fantasy VII the day of release and he... Uh, Took a break to go and get on an IRC channel, and someone was spamming uh, Sephiroth Kills Eris like over and over and over again. And this was 1997.
0: I, I think I already told you that it was spoiled for me before the game even came out because it was already out in Japan. Oh, that's right. And yes. it was all over the internet. And so. Uh-huh. I mean, my friend who was obsessed with Final Fantasy VII was telling me all of the plot points, and they didn't mean anything to me at the time. I did not give a damn about Final Fantasy VII, circa 19, early 1997, but uh, I knew that spoiler very well. <laughs> you were just <laughs> waiting for to it. Follow, and so I knew exactly what was coming when the game came in. So anyway, if you didn't know, I
1: apologize. You've been spoiled now. Yeah, sorry. Don't level up Eris. It's not worth it. <laughs> Hey, you can get her ultimate weapon pretty early. You can. Um, And I think
0: her last limit break, too. So I may have gone on a little bit of a rant on Twitter, Nadia.
1: Yeah, you did just a bit there.
0: Yeah. And as the last time I checked, that little rant has uh, maybe 1,000 or 1,100 likes. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) 1,076 likes and 169 (laughs) retweets. Wow. And 137 responses. And I said look, I'm going to play Final Fantasy VII Remake, but I don't think I can ever forgive them for making it an action game. Mainstream audiences and target sales and marketing be damned. Give me my turn-based RPG, but with really gorgeous graphics. And so, <laughs> lots of responses to that one. Uh, the Square Enix PR folks were like, saw your tweets about Final Fantasy VII Remake, cat." And I was like, ha ha. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Do you hate me now? And... And I would say 50-50 responses, 50% mm-hmm. were right on cat, I totally agree with you, and 50% were people going, now I want, or either they were saying, I don't like turn-based gameplay, I want an action game, or we already played the turn-based game, mm-hmm. let's have a new take on this classic game. It's a very special thing that they're remaking it from the ground up. Nadia, what's your take on it?
1: Well, like I said, uh, I actually, in my uh, article that I wrote today, the dissection of the trailer, I said I was of two minds about this because it really is a 50-50 sort of opinion where on one hand I'm like, uh, okay, the people who are, who grew up with Final Fantasy VII who have the nostalgia for Final Fantasy VII, they're the ones who are going to want to go back to the original turn-based gameplay and say, okay, I want to enjoy this just with nicer graphics. They're going to boot up this game that's completely different and episodic to boot and they're going to be like wow this is not the game I grew up with what happened here and it's like you take a look at games like uh, the Crash Trilogy, uh, the Spyro Trilogy, those those sold very very well for what they are which are basically HG upgrades and that's all Square Enix had to do so I guess in a way I admire them for building something from the ground up. And, uh, like I also said in my article, I said, I have played Final Fantasy VII more times than I have called my mother to say hello. (laughs) Which isn't literal, but (laughs) the point is, I have played Final Fantasy VII to death, so I do not mind the idea of, hey, here's something completely new. Have fun with it. And, you know, I liked Final Fantasy VII's, sorry, I liked Crisis Core's battle system. I liked Final Fantasy XV's battle system, even though it wasn't perfect by any means. I, I'm definitely willing to give this game a shot no matter which way it goes. I feel completely neutral about both ways.
0: I am not neutral on this. Yeah, Given clearly. the choice, I would prefer a turn-based game. And I, don't, I think it's a fallacy to say that if you have turn-based gameplay, then it must necessarily be a direct one-to-one remake. I don't think that's true at all. I think there was a lot of interesting upgrades they could have made to the original battle system that ultimately they did not to do in favor of more of a kingdom heartsy hack and slash kind of game and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i (laughs) i i gotta say like that's a letdown to me i think that i would have vastly preferred them going back to an atb style system maybe reimagine it a little bit find some interesting wrinkles that you can do maybe innovate i mean but i guess square enix has decided that that's just not a thing. They're never going mm. to make a AAA turn-based game. I've heard one uh, bit of speculation that, in fact, the positive reviews and Final Fantasy 15 did get positive reviews uh-huh. of Final Fantasy 15, emboldened Square Enix to make a action game uh, from now on. In which case, I have done terrible things. <laughs> I should have <laughs> crucified good. that way, game. Way to go, Planet Earth. I broke it with yourself. No, what if I, 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 there's blood on my hands. If that's the case, Nadia,
1: (laughs) there, apparently there is you, you played yourself.
0: My God. that's just a bummer. I strongly, uh, I've talked about this on the podcast many times, but I strongly dispute the notion that turn-based gameplay is outdated. I think that it's just a different style of gameplay. It is more tactical. It's more, uh, there are more options to make, Games are a series of interesting decisions, and I think turn-based games encapsulate that. And it's interesting. I see so many people who are like, I only like action games. I don't like turn-based games. And, you know, that's, that's to each your own, right? But I'm actually completely the opposite. These days, I don't actually like action games very much. I don't play action games a whole hell of a lot. I mostly play turn-based games. That is where my passion lies. So, yeah, I feel like I'm having... S- this is very much a monkey paw situation for me.
1: Yeah, so uh, I bet you're being kind of kept up at night thinking about that.
0: no nah, not really. It's fine. <laughs>
1: what have I done? I will play it. It's cool. I'm sure it'll be fine
0: people were going, oh, it's the story and the world and the characters that got us in the originally. It
1: wasn't the gameplay.
0: and I'm well, mm. not entirely wrong there, actually.
1: No, they're not. Although my worst fear is that they will take like, Final Fantasy VII story is a little bit of a mess to begin with, and it became a, hu- a bigger mess when Advent Children came out. So I'm just kind of worried they'll take this, what was essentially a pretty, like, thematically Final Fantasy VII was quite simple. Uh, the ultimate question was, does the planet need humanity, or would the planet, like, shake us off if they if it could? And that's why Final Fantasy VII's ending was so ambiguous, but then Advent Children comes along and makes no sense whatsoever, and kind of barge, barges all over that, that simple but, you know, compelling question that they had at the end of the game, and I've always been a little bit resentful of that.
0: You, you made a bunch of observations that made me think about how the fact that Square has changed a heck of a lot in the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. And a, lot of, a lot of the people who were directly involved with Final Fantasy VII, including Hironobu Sakaguchi, have since moved on. Yeah. I mean, granted, a lot of the people who were involved are still around. Uh, I believe Katase is certainly still there. Um, yeah, you, were, you made a bunch of observations in your
1: article. One of them is that we're finally beyond, beyond the bombing mission. We are, yes. Um, I don't know if you remember the 2015 um, PlayStation Experience trailer for Final Fantasy VII Remake. Yeah, uh, it was so it, long ago. It was so long ago, and it didn't go anywhere. Uh, if you if you broke it down, you basically got as far as Cloud running from the Shinra soldiers right after the bombing mission. And uh, you can already tell that this remake, uh, it goes at least as far as the... Uh, our beloved sewer dungeon uh, after the Don Corno uh, mission in uh, Sector 7. So we are much further along. Still not like, you know, anywhere near close to the end of the game or even close to the end of Midgar, but we are definitely further along than we were before. And so that's kind of a heartening, uh, that's a heartening thing to see.
0: You said that Aps is uglier than ever, and Aps is Don Corneo's pet monster in the sewer, which, yes. uh, by the way, I think is the worst uh, segment of the entire game. What, Don uh, Don Corneo? Everything from the moment you enter the town near Don Corneo's uh, hideout to mm. the
1: sewer. I, I think that's a terrible episode of Final Fantasy VII. The nice thing about it, though, is that when it ends, you get to the train graveyard part, which is one of my favorite areas in the game. You know what's uh,
0: super was... annoying, by the way? With so it. I keep trying to play Final Fantasy VII,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: twice now... I've gotten to the point where I get into the town for the first time, uh, near Don Corneo's place where you're supposed to start cross dressing. huh. And for some reason my save isn't saving.
1: That is weird. Huh? Yeah.
0: So I every time I start my restart
1: my game, uh-huh. I'm back at Eris' house and I have to sneak out. This is your hell. You're in hell now, Kat. Sorry to tell it's you. It's just
0: gonna be in repeat forever. It's Groundhog it Day. <laughs> well, it's Groundhog Day again. Yeah. So you're commenting that everything looks
1: much brighter and livelier in the last trailer. Uh, yeah, it's um, again. I said like Midgar isn't exactly Disneyland. It's not supposed to look bright and cheerful, but um, definitely compared to the old trailer, the 2015 one, uh, there is a lot more color, a lot more detail. Uh, Midgar, even though it is kind of a, a dark place, it's not. It's not what I would call gray and you know gray and brown. It has a very distinct look, as we have talked about. Exactly. It says very kind of radioactive, bluey, greeny sort of thing. It's a very unique sort of uh, aesthetic, and I always really liked. And I think that from what I've seen of the trailer, it, it does a lot more to capture that than the old trailer did.
0: One thing that you mentioned was it's unclear if you can still
1: tell Eris to shove her flowers. <laughs> Yeah, like I said, it's kind of a small thing, but now that I think about it, it might be more significant than I thought, because um, if you see the new trailer, Eris basically gives Cloud a flower, and uh, I'm guessing since it's a cutscene, you can't really do like you can in the original game and say, you know, oh, I don't want one of your stupid flowers, uh, I kind of get the feeling that the uh, love triangle between Tifa, Cloud, and Eris is not something you're going to have much control over. Uh, Because, again, if you told Eris, hey, take your flower and shove it, that was kind of the start of, like, you being able to be nicer to Tifa and and date Tifa. And it's not a huge, huge part of Final Fantasy VII, but it is a part. And I feel like Square Enix, uh, as I said in my feature, they... these are very lucrative characters for them now. They probably don't want you doing anything that they wouldn't do to them, you know what I mean? Like, um... Obviously, you can't rename them because of voice acting things, but you, that also means, well, you can't name Cloud Asshole. You can't name Barrett Mr. T. Uh, in fact, a lot of Square Enix's newer games, you can't really rename anyone. It's just their way or the highway. So I'm kind of wondering, well, what does that mean for the remake? Do we have control over how we act towards characters, or is it just sit back and, and listen to what we have to say?
0: Cloud doesn't look as emaciated in the new trailer, which is actually disappointing.
1: Yes, and here's uh, here's one uh, point where I don't know if the old people were just really bad at their job or if they were just actually paying attention to story points in Final Fantasy uh, VII. Um, Final Fa- uh, yes, Cloud looks quite emaciated in the 2015 trailer, which makes a lot of sense, because when you are on the bombing mission, when you start the game, uh, you find out much, much later in the game that Cloud basically joins Avalanche several days after he's been like basically experimented on and kept in a tube for for weeks, maybe even months. So he's probably not feeling that good. He's probably not supposed to look that good. And he's still kind of like, you know, skinny in that, you know, pretty anime boy way. But he doesn't look just like utterly sickly. And like I said, I don't know if that's because the old modelers were not good at their job, or if they were paying attention. So I guess it could be either or.
0: Jessie is still a cinnamon roll who is too good and too pure for this world.
1: <laughs> yeah, a lot of people are a a, a big fan of, of Jessie in the trailer. You only see her very briefly, but she's like uh she she's always been kind of a favorite of mine. Uh she has like this hopeless crush on Cloud that I always found kind of cute. And it's it's weird to have any sort of sympathy for Avalanche because they're eco-terrorists. There's no way around that. But something I mentioned in the article is that there are supplementary materials uh, that people have translated. Uh, there's one story in particular where Eris is in the live uh, stream, and she meets like the spirit of Jesse, who is stuck and won't return to the planet because she has so many regrets over killing people. Uh, as an avalanche member, what had happened, apparently, was that bomb that was used to blow up the reactor was um, designed by a fringe member of Avalanche who wasn't part of the group anymore. And so it was more powerful than it needed to be, and that's why a whole bunch of innocent people died. And obviously in the, in the game, the original Final Fantasy VII, you know, you don't really get that sense from them. It's just like, oh, yay, we blew everything up. Everything's great. Let's all have a beer. But in the, in the remake, which is coming to life during a very different political time than 1997... This is going to be their chance to kind of not erase what, you know, Avalanche has done and what it does, but maybe make it a little more, uh, a little less callous. So basically, adapting those sorts of supplementary materials from Japan wouldn't be the worst idea. That's just off the top of my head, though.
0: I agree with you. I think Mm -hmm. that that is a really good opportunity to expand upon the story, which means they're not going to do it of course (laughs) well maybe i'm being a little unfair i I think that that is an obvious issue to address because perhaps they're a little blase about killing people (laughs) and destroying reactors and everything in uh final fantasy 7 though there are interesting moments where they do try to humanize Shinra's rank and file employees from time to time like there's a bit very early on in the game where uh barrett is on the train and (laughs) he's slamming the uh,
1: punching the wall and scaring the crap out of a dude who's just trying to get to work yeah he's just trying to get home and he's like i think he encounters them twice in a row he's like oh god i have all the luck because every time he gets on the train avalanche gets on with him and just starts causing trouble the solution
0: of course is square made uh the square made shinra mustache twirlingly evil Right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where you have a character who deliberately drops a plate on an entire sector. Uh, for as bad as Avalanche is, uh, Shinra's twice as bad. Yeah, and <laughs> if then, you want to like- talk about how things play in this day and age, consider the 911 truthiness of uh, uh, of having uh, the Shinra CEO drop half of Sh- Midgar on the population and then blame it on Avalanche.
1: Uh, all it's going to take is someone to tell me that, like, uh, you know, Mako can't melt steel beams or whatever, and I'll just turn off the game and put it away somewhere. <laughs> oh, my God. If they actually do that, screw them. <laughs> yeah, that'd be kind of bad. They're not going to do that.
0: Somebody pointed <laughs> out that they're really excited for a well-localized Final Fantasy VII, and I got yes. to say, so am I.
1: Yeah, I am definitely excited for that, especially since we were just talking about how, like, blessé the avalanche was about killing people. For all I know, it could have been something lost in the translation. I feel like a lot of Final Fantasy VII was lost in the translation. And I'm looking forward to hopefully regaining some of those, you know, plot holes without making everything stupidly complicated. Or at least some nuance, right? Please, yes.
0: Yeah, Tim Rogers did a really good job of breaking down the localization of Final Fantasy VII and
1: his, like, ten-part exhaustive uh, investigation of that. Yeah, I watched one part of that, actually. I kind of came in in the middle where he's talking about, like, what Zack meant to Eris. Uh, Eris says in um, the original translation that they were boyfriend and girlfriend, but apparently that was never the case. Yeah, like, apparently Eris was just, like, more like, oh, wouldn't it be nice? Not so much they were a couple.
0: It's stuff like the localization that makes me roll my eyes when people are like well (laughs) if you want a turn-based game just play the original and I'll go okay yeah I do have the original the local the original is badly localized and extremely dated from a graphical perspective and I was kind of looking forward to playing a kind of modern take on the series perhaps with still most of the retro charm intact and they're removing a lot of that so yeah, it's the reinter- I welcome the reinterpretation, but I do think that there was room to reinterpret the original vision within kind of the boundaries of it. But
1: Yeah, I understand that. Um, I also would have accepted if any time during these billions of re-releases Square Enix has given us, they would have just said, hey, you know what we're going to give you? We're just going to totally polish the translation and give you a good one. I would have been okay with that. So how excited are you for Final Fantasy VII Remake? I have a feeling I'd be a little more excited uh, towards June when we get like a really good look at it, because uh, I'm assuming that, you know, they're not bullshitting us and we are going to get a good look at it at E3. So looking uh, forward to
0: playing it. Yeah. Uh, Sounds like the demo is going to be coming out sooner rather than later.
1: Wow, they really are just like they weren't they weren't like pulling our leg. They really are moving forward on this. I know somebody who's played it. Put it that way. Really?
0: Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. So. I'll say that much. so there okay. is a playable demo out there somewhere in the wild. And
1: it didn't kill them whoever they are they
0: did not, they did not, this isn't the ring no <laughs> seven days. I like that idea. You play the you play the Final Fantasy Seven demo and then after seven days, uh, Eris climbs out of the TV and kills you.
1: <laughs> she stuffs your mouth and nose full of flowers and you die. All right,
0: so we are gonna continue on to our review of Detective Pikachu so don't go away. All right, this is going to be a review of Detective Pikachu. By the way, we are going to be spoiling plot points. Yes. So yes. you might want to turn off the show now if you don't want to hear those spoilers. I will say, uh, yeah, we liked it, right, Nadia?
1: Oh, yeah, I enjoyed it very
0: much. It was a lot of fun. Okay, cool. Now you can turn off the podcast. Let's go spoil away. So uh, you just saw it last night, Nadia.
1: What did you think? Well, first of all, I bought tickets for the wrong show in the wrong theater, and that was really great. Womp <laughs> But once I fixed that... Uh... Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was pretty much what I wanted. I just wanted a, a, a movie about seeing Pokemon in their live environment, and uh, I, I more or less got that. And you know, the plot was still a little bit, you know, childish, but that's fine. It's totally okay. We're talking about Pokemon here, not the young and the restless. Uh, the effects were great. Uh, Ryan Reynolds. Uh, uh, Ryan Reynolds was um, uh, was was pretty great as Pikachu. Like I wasn't sold on him on him when he was first announced, but then he was. He was obviously really into the role, so I guess when he's having fun, we're having fun, you know?
0: Did you think that the design, the CG, and the Pokemon themselves worked? I think so. Um, did you not think so? I think it was 50-50. I think that there were some that really worked. Like, mm-hmm. the. I, I thought Psyduck worked. I thought I the Cubone at the very beginning of the movie definitely worked. I thought Pikachu very much worked because they obviously put a lot of time into it. Yeah, of course. I did not think that Greninja really worked.
1: I thought anything with
0: feathers or fur really worked.
1: Yeah, Greninja I noticed was quite shaky cam. I don't think they wanted you getting a good look at them. You would die. Yeah, they looked really cartoony. Uh, Same with Gyarados.
0: Actually, I thought Gyarados was extremely cartoony.
1: Yeah, I guess Gyarados is kind of a a weird one to make because he is kind of a cartoony looking Pokemon to begin with. Charizard was all right. Gengar was ugly. Yeah, I'm not sure what went on with Gengar there.
0: Yeah, what the heck was going on with that? But yeah, Charizard was all right. I really like Charizard, yeah. It took us into kind of a dark place because Charizard was totally going to kill Pikachu. That was it. Oh, yeah, and he was going to
1: like kill him in one bite. Or or barbecue him. It would have been Toasty (laughs) Pikachu. (laughs) Toasted Pikachu that would have been horrifying good lord i i am hoping that the next um the next pokemon sort of detective pikachu style movie that we get is uh has more of that kind of pit fighting I, that was probably my favorite part of the movie yeah i think that this movie was
0: really intended to flesh out the world of, P- of pokemon a lot mhm because i mean first of all it's not your typical trainer journey which i think is the right call for this film i think so yeah it and then Also, they kind of show a city in which fighting and battling isn't the only thing, and in in fact is illegal. (laughs) So they have to have fight clubs, Pokemon Fight Club.
1: Yeah, (laughs) that was pretty great, though.
0: And uh, I, I did like that they did show some battling, but actually, battling mm-hmm. doesn't have much of a presence in this film except for that sequence and the end
1: yeah, you're right um there there really wasn't a lot of battling except uh as you said the the pit fight, which I really just loved just the the kind of dynamic between that Charizard and his like you know kind of punk ass trainer uh just like you know the scarred Charizard and the you know just the kind of grimy uh cage fighting and everything like that but yes, there was that, and there was the um the kind of the climax. And uh, yeah, that was it. Um, maybe if you want to count the the stalking of the Cubone at the start as well, but that wasn't really a battle. Which actually is one of my favorite parts of the whole film. That was pretty great. Um, That's a really good way to kick off the film. Uh, just uh, it's kind of appropriately dark and funny. Like you talk about, hey, you wear the skull of your dead relative really well. <laughs> well, yeah, it totally established the humor. And I liked that it
0: had a winking self-awareness to it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, what is the most Pokemon activity you can do? Stock a Pokemon and catch it, right?
1: Yeah, and throw a Pokeball
0: at it. I think that it plays into the fantasy that everybody has had at some point, imagining what it would be like if they it was them with a the Pokeball, sneaking into the tall grass, and there's a Cubone mm-hmm. or, or a Pokemon in general there, just waiting to be captured, and what that would be like. And I thought that the movie perfectly illustrated that.
1: Yeah, and it also kind of just had a, a good explanation even for the po- for the, uh, the Cubone just being there. Like, I'm not sure if it mother had just died or what the story was, but uh, uh, the, car- the main character, what's his name again? Um, Tim. Tim. He uh, just apparently, like, this Cubone had been crying outside his window all night. <laughs> Let's be honest. Tim doesn't matter. He's not an important character. He's just a vessel for Pikachu. Basically, he, he carries Pikachu around, and that's his main role. Yes. Although I, I, did, I do like the fact that we have, uh, again, kind of a good look into the Pokemon world with a person who actually is just not that hot on Pokemon training and in, in a world where it's, where it's everything.
0: Yeah, he's an ins- insurance adjuster or an ins- insurance salesman or something. <laughs> something, like, something to do with insurance, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So he never became a Pokemon trainer. He wanted to be a Pokemon trainer, but it never worked out. Yeah, And so um, he, and he never so much has got a quote unquote Pokemon partner, which apparently yes. in this world, everybody just has a Pokemon that's with them at all times. Like a, a familiar, like a witch with a cat.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's, or it's like, um, if you ever read, uh, the golden compass series, uh, it's like everyone has their demon sort of familiar. And, uh. Yeah, Rhyme City, I think it's really interesting that they went this whole concept that they that they did with Detective Pikachu was to give us a city, uh, which is true to the game Detective Pikachu, of course, where there are no Pokeballs, it's just the you know, the the Pokemon walk alongside humans. They are they are truly partners and they're helpers. Uh speaking of which, holy shit that ditto. Oh, we'll get to
0: that. I think that's yes. an entire discussion to have separately. I yes. do want to say that I think that the Pokemon company it's deliberately po- pushing this as part of something a process that they started back with Pokemon black and white are you familiar with what happened in Pokemon black and white Nadia
1: it's been a very long time since I played that wasn't the Pokemon liberation uh that was the one one was it okay yeah. so it was the one all right where yeah. they kind
0: of directly tackled it and they kind of came up with the lame milk toast answer of the Pokemon are your friends. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and I think they wanted to flesh out that idea some more, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. try to move away some more from the whole uh, fantastical cockfighting aspect of it. Yeah, that so, was
1: definitely that was definitely a thing in, in Detective Pikachu because they even mentioned the Cubone. Well, why do Pokemon escape from their Pokeballs? Because they don't want to be your partner after all.
0: Yeah, exactly. Or they, they, they don't want to be your Pokeball, or they're testing whether you are worthy to be their partner. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta have confidence, and you gotta show that you have the power, and that you're gonna be great. You're gonna have a good time together, so. And then having all of the Pokemon, everybody have their own kind of little Pokemon familiar who helps Mm -hmm. them out, and they're living together, apparently, and they're doing various things together. Um, Yeah, like, I think that made a lot of things make a lot of sense, actually.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, I have to say, Rhyme City is a place that does make sense um it's the kind of place that you'd want to live you know yeah and it
0: makes the pokemon really do feel more like more like more than pets
1: yeah yeah, yeah. definitely like um there's even a, a bit where they address uh, the whole communication aspect uh because of course uh pikachu and tim can talk to each other but uh, uh pikachu mentions how normally you know obviously they can't speak english to one another but you can kind of you don't need to speak English to know what your Pokemon want, and they don't need to understand it to like know what you want. I'm curious
0: to know how you choose the Pokemon that you end up going with. I guess probably what happens is you are training. Everybody does their initial run, and some people uh-huh. last longer than others, right? Uh-huh. And the ones who, and then once you're done, perhaps you have built up a bond with a particular Pokemon. And that's just the one that you end up keeping, right? And that becomes yeah. your best friend. And the rest are like maybe released back into the wild because it's not super fair to keep them.
1: Yeah, that was that's my best guess because um, it's not as if people go around with like six Pokeballs in Rhyme City. They have their they seem to have their one Pokemon, like one person, one Pokemon policy. I guess.
0: <laughs> Though I'd be curious to know if anybody is just walking around with an Articuno or a or a legendary monster of some sort. It's like So, <laughs> what's your Pokémon partner? Groudon. He's a god of earth. It's <laughs> like, oh, I have a I have a uh a Weedle. Oh. That that's cool. How about you? <laughs> I love Dialga, god of time and space.
1: Oh, cool. <laughs> I,
0: I got a Butterfree.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. Yeah. I love him very much. His name is Butter. Did you see any Alolan Pokemon in Rhyme City? I didn't. No, I didn't see any Gen 7s.
0: I saw 1 through 6. And in fact, Gen 5 had an interestingly large presence in
1: this movie. Gen 5, I'm trying to think, who are the stars in Gen 5?
0: Uh, Gen 5 would have been the little pig, and it also would have been Snivy, the the thing that turns into the grass snake, and then oh, Oshawott, yes. the sad otter.
1: Yeah, um, I did notice there were a lot of Trico there. Yeah, there are a lot of Trico, but basically no other Gen 3 Pokemon. Hmm, you're right. I didn't see Torchic or uh,
0: Mudkip. I did see a fair number of Gen 4 characters, uh, including Torterra, which had a large role in the film. So to speak. And also, I mean, there was Greninja as well. And some random ones like Braviary. Braviary popped up a whole bunch. <laughs> yeah, Braviary was pretty cool. Braviary's pr- uh, a lot bigger than I thought he was. Well, the scale kind of was interesting, right? I mean, Pikachu looked mm-hmm. really big in this one.
1: Yeah, I guess Pikachu kind of had to be bigger. Like, how big is Pikachu in, in like, you know, Pokemon? I don't than, know. Like, the but, world. I mean, that could not have been easy
0: to have Pikachu perched on his shoulder all the time.
1: No, that had to be heavy. But I do love how even the movie addressed that, saying how they, they did sell harnesses for carrying a Pokemon around. And, of course, Lucy had one for Psyduck.
0: Oh, so cute! I love Psyduck and Lucy. <laughs>
1: Psyduck was great.
0: I gotta say that the gal who was playing Lucy and I, I don't know who what her name was. I think it was Catherine Newton. Yeah, that's the mm-hmm. name that's bringing to mind. Uh, she did a really good job with the lines that she had. <laughs> she was very. She was
1: given very Pokemon NPC lines, especially at the beginning. Yeah, you're right. She definitely had that kind of on the nose performance, but she she really she did quite well with it.
0: By the way, my line in the movie is her saying, okay, I do Pokemon listicles. And how do you do Pokemon listicles? They're all cute. Yeah. <laughs> I love how passionate and angry she was about that. They're all cute. Hey, she's right. I, I like Lucy. I'd totally hire her. She wants to break news. She's all about that. She's She's got a n- nose for the story.
1: There Though, you go. She should be on our team.
0: Though I think, uh, I forget who was commenting the, about this to me, but uh, she sells out at the end because uh, the the son of the main villain is like, uh, yeah, just make sure to tell everybody that i am got this all under control and the corporation is going to be fine. And she's like, yeah, no, I'll totally do that. I get to be on camera. Sweet.
1: <laughs> You're right. Oh, God, she did sell out. Sold oh, out to the man. Everything's a lie. Everything is a lie. All right, let's talk about the ditto. Oh, God. Okay, so here's my question to you, Kat. Okay. You, Matt, and Katie saw this, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and I heard, or I was told, that Matt said at one point out loud, I don't like this. Uh, yes, he did actually say that out loud. Uh, when they took
0: off the glasses and they had the freaky ditto eyes on yeah. the person, Matt, yeah. was, Matt actually went, ah, <laughs> I don't like <laughs> this. <laughs>
1: I had a very similar reaction. It was messed up! It it was quite messed up. I was thinking mess up. Oh, this would be kind of a cute fo- film to take your kid to. Oh, no, it wouldn't. I'm oh, wrong. Okay, so this
0: this opens up so many questions. Because in the games, Ditto is the breeding machine. Oh, God. Because you, what you do is you stick a Ditto in a daycare with another Pokemon, and then uh, eggs appear. Yep. And it doesn't Quote, explain unquote. how it all works or whatever, but presumably the Ditto can turn into any Pokemon. They can have uh, sex and create y- new Pokemon, much. question mark? <laughs> question mark? So Dittos can become human.
1: Oh, no. Oh, no. That is so messed up. This podcast is why would you art. Why did they go there? Oh, I don't that the, That whole thing, which is I, at first I thought, oh, that's kind of cute. They're doing a tribute to the anime. Oh, God. And then <laughs> this is all I wrong. thought only Ditto could become Pokemon. No, they could become human. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's messed up. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was just that one po- that one Ditto that had been like, they insinuated had been experimented on, but either way, Jesus Christ! And I don't want to see that again. You know that that is possible because they were doing a lot of experiments on it.
0: mm Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I mean, you would have to think that Ditto would be your most useful. Uh, helper right it's because they can push your wheelchair they can make yeah, dinner the they can
1: be your lover
0: <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> well if i'm not mistaken don't some of the japanese games insinuate that pokemon were quote-unquote married to humans at one point no uh, where did you get this yeah. horrifying idea no I, I swear it's true there's uh they changed it for the uh north american localization i don't remember precisely which game it was but uh listeners uh be my eyes and ears on this one because i'm sure it's true Someone look this up for me.
0: Yeah, I think that by and large, the script itself is fairly straightforward. And it was pretty easy to spot most of the twists that were coming. Mm hmm. Yeah, that one. This movie, it's interesting. This movie is not for young children, I don't think. I think it's a little too scary for that.
1: I think it is a it is it is a PG movie, right? I would not take like a, a five year old to see it like maybe like, you know, older eight, nine even like seven sure no problem but uh, i could see like a kid getting a little bit overwhelmed by it
0: yeah my friends have i i've mentioned her on the podcast before they have a three-year-old who's about to turn four and she loves pokemon she really got into pokemon through pokemon let's go she has a pikachu uh, and everything and so this would seem like the obvious move to take her to but i think that uh, particularly the laboratory scene and the scene mm-hmm. where the ape a- palms are attacking the people would uh, yeah. be a bit much
1: yeah it's probably not just a it's a little too intense and also i don't think those are the pokemon kids like very small kids are familiar with like i can see like older fans definitely appreciating like how they kind of made these pokemon quote-unquote real but i think a younger a very young fan it would more appreciate something like Uh, the Mewtwo Strikes Back remake coming out later this year
0: yeah I think this is definitely an 8 to 12 kind of thing
1: yeah but uh, I definitely did see some happy kids exiting the theater
0: (laughs) they were having a good time
1: yeah they were having like a a very good time I went to a, a fairly late showing so there weren't too many people in my theater but the the show before ours had sold out or pretty much sold out uh, but when I saw like the kid leaving that show, they seemed to be like you know, oh Bulbasaur, and of course the Bulbasaur were just adorable. Oh, the
0: Bulbasaur bit was great. They did a great job yeah. with Bulbasaur. Oh, so cute those eyes. Yes. So Nadia, is this the best Poke or is this the best video game movie ever?
1: Well the the bar is so low that like a flea couldn't limbo under it. But yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it's actually probably in line
0: with movies like Mortal Kombat maybe it's better than mortal Kombat. it's probably got better production values ultimately but it's faithful to the universe in which it's created it's not gonna win any freaking oscars that's for sure no it's maybe for special effects maybe but like i wouldn't even uh, go that far like i I thought the special effects were a little too stylized
1: you think so i don't know like uh maybe nominated i would say but like it, it it's it's a movie that knows what it is and that's all a video game movie can be really
0: I thought they were really smart, as I already mentioned, to do a side story rather than a straight-up uh, trainer story, because yes. it puts you more in the line with the universe rather than trying to recreate the games, because that's when you get into trouble, right? When you're trying to straight-up recreate a game within the within a movie context.
1: Yeah, and I think that like uh, there are a few people who are like, oh, I would have preferred something about Ash, Misty, and uh, Brock, but I wouldn't have because... Rhyme City, as I said before, is just, like, it's all Pokemon all the time. I mean, Pikachu is your 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 co-star. Uh, I don't really care that much about Ash, Brock, and Misty, and if you have a movie about them, they're going to be taking up most of the screen time because this isn't Rhyme City. This is a, a, a universe where the Pokemon are mostly in Pokeballs, except for Pikachu.
0: Yeah, I think that they were wise not to do that because the second they do that, then it puts it into opposition with the anime. That people grew mm. up with. And yeah, maybe people would be excited to see the anime in real life, right? It also would make people go, oh, well, the anime is way better than this, or this movie is way better than the anime. Whereas now it exists in harmony with the anime, right? So it makes people more likely to check out the anime because they really love Detective Pikachu
1: yeah and I mean, like even though Detective Pikachu is a game, it doesn't have the like really ingrained sort of nostalgia that uh the original anime does. you know what I mean,
0: yeah, and also this allowed it to tell a relatively self contained story that's like pretty entertaining and because there's been more than twenty twenty years of Pokemon at this point that they were able to draw upon, they could have lots of like psych gags and good nods for hardcore fans and all of that stuff if any if any property was well suited to being turned into a movie it was definitely pokemon i think
1: yeah um the one thing i want to know is if uh what's the name of the artist ken sugiyama sugimori i'm sorry that's it uh i want to know if he did those end credits uh because uh they were great you just had like this real uh like his style for the the character the art the actors who were in the movie i thought that was fantastic
0: yeah I thought they were really cute and very much in line with um the the traditional Pokemon look. I would be very yes. surprised if those were Ken Sugimori's art because Sugimori hasn't been involved with Pokemon's art in a very long time now. that's true. yeah, and honestly, looking at it, it looks like kind of the Pokemon sudden Moon art
1: does it really it looks yeah, that's bit, what it, know, it looks like a little Gen one to
0: me. Sugimori has a very distinctive art style, so that's true. But uh, I, I love that uh, that credit sequence. That was great. This this movie makes me feel like Blizzard blew it in turning <laughs> Warcraft <laughs> yeah. into a straight up retelling of the story. They would have been better off telling a original side story that yes. was more self contained rather than trying to basically be heaving with lore.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Um, and as I said many many times before. Uh, Detective Pikachu is successful because it just goes all in into that weirdness. and It says, we know what we are. We're just going to tell a good story about, with like Pokemon everywhere because everyone's here to see the Pokemon and here they are. And that's another, that was another problem. Um, So Pokemon
0: is a unique universe with its own look and it does not easily bear comparison to things. Whereas Warcraft is going to instantly be compared to Game of
1: Thrones and Lord of the Rings. Of course, because you have, you know, you have the orcs and the griffins and, and stuff like that.
0: And if it looks a little too cartoony, which it did, because it was kind of going for that blizzard look to it, then mm-hmm. it's just going to naturally suffer in comparison to those films.
1: Yeah, no, I that was kind of the problem right up front, unfortunately. Yeah, though, ultimately, I thought the Warcraft
0: movie was fine. I, it wasn't amazing. It was a decent retelling of the classic Warcraft story. I thought the orcs were more interesting than the humans, ultimately. But um, as for Detective Pikachu, cute. Cute movie. Um, if they did another movie in this style, I would totally go see it. In fact, it oh, sounds yeah. like they're doing one, but this time it's starring a Pokemon trainer, so we can get more Pokemon
1: battles. Oh, I'm definitely looking forward to that. I am curious to see how the movie does in, in the box office. I think it'll do quite well. I thought they did a great job with the Pokemon battles, as
0: limited as they were. And mm-hmm. they were probably right to keep the Pikachu actually doing things until the end of the movie, because it really built it up then. Yeah, yeah. I, I It was just a good, fun movie. A really great popcorn movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Detective Pikachu, I would say that ultimately, yeah, it was good. Yeah, I, I'm not yeah. going to say that it's the greatest thing I've ever watched. I As I was kind of talking about earlier this week, I think that po- uh, video game movies are better suited to, you know, TV or the small screen or just remaining within their own world and not being adapted to other media, but... As for trying to make a Pokemon movie, this was about as successful as I would have liked, and I came out thoroughly entertained.
1: Yeah, I came out having a
0: good time, chatting about it, laughing about it. Good times. All right, so we are now going to continue on to the mailbag. All right, Nadia, last week we introduced our console RPG quest, and we don't really have time to do it this week because we had a lot to cover from the standpoint of Detective Pikachu and the Final Fantasy VII trailer Mm. unveil. but uh, we'll continue it next week. In the meantime, uh, we have some comments from the readers, and one of them is from Dave Dalrymple11, who refers to we were talking about. I, I think at some point in the episode I said why Why are so many early RPGs dominated by labyrinths? And they said, when you look at early RPGs, it's important to remember that even D&D wasn't publishing adventures with very much story to them until 1983. The earlier D&D adventure modules were mostly dungeon crawls, and the earliest console RPGs followed suit. Early in D&D, was also very big on mega dungeons like Castle Greyhawk or the Temple of Elemental Evil. It was a very big reason why early console and computer RPGs were built around huge generic labyrinths. They were following the template set by D&D. Yeah, I agree. That does actually make a lot of sense, because uh, I suppose, I mean, tabletop RPGs, sprang directly from war games, right? And war games weren't mm-hmm. exactly telling stories. They were about moving units around on a map and enacting strategies and everything, which is why I always find it funny that RPGs are associated with telling stories, right, and acting out particular stories, because that's not where their roots are.
1: You no, know, although that's funny, because um, basically with uh, as soon as there was Dungeons & Dragons, Dragonlance followed very closely behind, which is pretty much... Uh, uh, Margaret Weiss and Tw- uh, Tracy Hickman's uh, RPG sessions translated to or transcribed to, to book form. This is about the good old ColecoVision. Uh, Cochembara set sa- Cochembra pardon me," says on the subject of this first episode. You younglings need to get off my lawn and admit the ColecoVision had amazing graphics, or at least they looked amazing. To- they looked amazing to the kid I was back in the day. I didn't even own a ColecoVision, but every time my parents and I walked by the one shop in my hometown that had one unit on display, I always tried my best to sneak in and look at the amazing new toy. I distinctly remember taking a leaflet of their game catalog, seeing a screen capture of Venture, and trying to imagine how cool a game must have looked in motion. Even today, thinking back to what programmers managed to achieve with such primitive hardware is truly mind-boggling. The first gaming machine I actually played extensively was the ZX Spectrum, and that thing had fantastic games that programmers somehow managed to fit into 16KB. Hey, hey, 16K. Yes, I will fully admit that um, in the contest between ColecoVision and Atari 2600 and pretty much any other system of the day, ColecoVision graphically was definitely the winner. Um, there were, of course, a, a crap ton of adaptations of Donkey Kong back in the day, and ColecoVision, honestly, amongst even the computer RPGs, uh, sorry, computer adaptations at the time, easily had one of the best looking adaptations until the NES version came around. Uh, again, that was my f- first video game. Although I do have to admit, uh, they made Donkey Kong look really, really frightening in the ColecoVision version of the game because he kind of had these, like, this pale face and these beady eyes. He was just, like, really, really angry looking in a way that, like, when I actually played Donkey Kong in the arcade and on the NES, I was surprised to see how kind of cartoony and goofy he was. Whereas in the ColecoVision version of the game, he just looks like he wants to rip Mario limb from limb. <laughs>
0: Uh, I was obviously, uh, ColecoVision and television and Atari 2600 were out of stores by the time I kind of started to come of age, but I did have a lot of old comic books and those old comic books had, uh, Atari 2600 game ads in them. And I remember thinking how great the art was. The art would be Mm -hmm. used to sell the game. And they would maybe have one little screen, because obviously the actual game, isn't going to look amazing. You're, you're no. just looking at the box art and imagining what that game could be.
1: Yeah, it was really kind of a, a don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge a Coleco game or any game from that era by its cover either. And
0: that continued all the way into the 16-bit era, I feel like, with magazines, where you would have advertisements that seemed to have absolutely nothing in common with the game itself. And then a couple yes. of little screens down on the bottom and a pic- a big picture of the box art.
1: Yeah, I think one of the biggest trolls of all time, and this was something that, like, my uh, friends and I lamented back in grade school, was uh, uh, the box art for Iron Sword, which actually had Fabio on it. <laughs> and then my friend's like, I, just tr- I boot up the game and I get this little dinky, you know, asshole with this, like, totally covered in armor. What is this? Yeah, for me it
0: was... Axelay. Do you remember Axelay? Yes. That was the yes. top-down shoot 'em up for the Super Nintendo. Or right, it would be top-down shoot up one level and then side horizontal another. Uh-huh. And the advertisement for that game was a dude with a banjo <laughs> for some reason? No, that that was Phalanx. That was Phalanx. Oh, okay, but- I'm messing it up. So Phalanx and then behind him you could see a little shooting star and he's kind of going, "Bo-"
1: That's it, it. Okay, you know what? That's a great, I, I still think that's a, that's just a great piece of box art, because no one, no one has forgotten it. It is, it so, was memorable, but it made no damn sense. <laughs> no, it made no sense whatsoever. <laughs> so, Nadia, uh, you're
0: playing Trails of Cold Steel, and Sammy J9 yes. says, I just recently finished Trails of Cold Steel 1 for PS4, and overall I enjoyed it. The battle system is fun, and the characters' world and story are pretty interesting. That said, I had some issues with it. Mostly due to the repetitive elements Cap brought up. Each chapter of the game feels a little too formulaic, and like you're doing the same things over and over again. Other parts of the game, you also really notice the limitations of the original version of the game. Sometimes I feel like I had a budget of it about 750. It's also about very much <laughs> one part of a game, part one of a game. As I understand, Tales of Cold Steel One and Two were supposed to be one game originally. Extend ends on a cliffhanger, and there are many things near the end of the game that aren't explained much at all. Overall, though, I still rather enjoyed it and we'll be picking up Part 2, which incidentally just had its release date for PS4 confirmed for June 4th. And despite some issues, it's a pretty good RPG with lots of Falcom charm and worth checking out.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm still very much enjoying it. I'm uh, still pretty early in the game. I'm basically uh, trying to solve a mystery of, like, the, um, I think the provincial government of the area is being dorks and, like, uh, just uh, antagonizing this, this town because they won't pay their taxes and so they're wrecking merchant stalls and it, it is kind of political but uh, I'm, right now I'm just kind of deep in a a forest beating up monsters so I, I win. Okay, so our next question is from Michael F. F Holder who asks us, I was very happy to see Chrono Trigger at the top of your list of greatest RPGs of all time and I was wondering what yours and Nadia's thoughts are on the sequel, Chrono Cross. I've heard the game mentioned by you and other podcasts like Retronauts in Passing, and the tone is usually negative. I've always thought that this game was about as beloved as Trigger due to the ur- near-unanimous praise it received upon its release. It's one of my favorite games of all time, possibly to- due to it being the first RPG ever played and completed. The battle system is deep but not overly complex. The graphics are some of the best on the PS1, and the soundtrack is, in my opinion, the best of any game ever. As a fan, I'm wondering why this game gets beat up by people these days. I know the story is convoluted as hell, and a lot of characters are silly, but there's just so much to love about this game. First of all, if it was Retronauts, uh, there's no way Jeremy Parrish has something bad about this game. It was probably Mackie. <laughs> I-, I just know that Parrish is a huge, huge fan of Chrono Cross. Uh, that was one of his first FAQs he ever wrote, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe the only FAQ he ever wrote. And I agree with you. I really enjoy Chrono Cross. Um, it's one of my favorite games on the PS1 by far. You're right, the soundtrack, if is definitely one of the greatest soundtracks of all time. Graphics are fine. I really enjoy those. Characters are silly, but there's also a luchador who is a priest, and I think that's amazing. My only major problem with it is that as a sequel to Chrono Trigger, and I've said this before, it fails because Chrono Trigger is a game where I can talk about the story and be like, oh, you know, this, 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 and this happens. And, you know, it's really cool. This, these parts are emotional. These parts are funny. I cannot sit here and tell you off the top of my head what Chrono Cross was about because I forget every single time I try to play the game. I play through it and I remember for maybe two weeks what the story was about and I, I just forget because it is, as you say, convoluted as hell. They're going between still different don't... worlds, right? You're really going between two, two, time, like two time streams and that kind of screws everything up. But there's also something about fate and it tries to carry on. Like if it was a self-contained story, I'd like it more because it tries to carry on what happened with Chrono Trigger. Which was a game that did not need to be carried on barring what happened with Shala. And I will give the game props it tells you what happens to Shala. But otherwise, it's like, just kind of, it just adds in a whole bunch of really complicated stuff that I don't think was necessary. I really don't like the fact they killed off the cast. It's just Chrono Trigger had such a nice, happy ending. And then to just kill them off by the the army of poor, quote unquote. And I'm like... When I heard that, I said, "Poor is like this little tiny, this little tiny town in the south of the continent." You're going to tell me they have an army that killed the, you know, the, the kingdom? Like, it, it just didn't sit well with me. But taken as an experience for what it is, I, I very much like Chrono Cross, and I would love to see it on the Switch.
0: <laughs> I would play it again, I guess. I kind of
1: bounced would, off yeah. it once uh, the main character became the villain. Oh God, yeah, that's uh, see. There you go. I can't exactly tell you. Oh, that happened because this, 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 and this. They turned into the, the yeah, cat guy. He, he turned into a cat. Something to do with his father and the, some sort of demon panther and uh, something about Chronopolis and I don't know. I mean, I really liked the, the soundtrack. It really was
0: quite amazing, and I still listen to it quite a bit on the yeah uh, on Spotify. Actually,
1: yeah, so do I. Um, Scars of Time is one of my favorite pieces of game music ever. Oh, it's so good, right? It's so excellent. And if you're ever bored uh, or you just need a pick-me-up, look for like live presentations of it, and you'll find some really good ones.
0: And finally, Gamer Law says, On the subject of last-gen ports, I would, look, I would like to come to the p- Switch. Let me add the last story in Kingdoms of Amalur. The last story is a Sakaguchi masterpiece that was largely overlooked due to its late release in the Wii. It also serves as a perfect example of why not every RPG has to be 100 hours in order to constitute a memorable experience. Kingdom of Amalur was a terrific new IP that quickly fell off the radar because of its developers' financial woes. THQ Nordic now owns the IP, but EA holds the publishing rights, so another release is technically possible. Kingdoms of Amalur, of course, was made by the company that was founded by Kurt Schilling, The Pitcher, which got a whole mess of money from Rhode Island and then went under because it was trying to make an MMORPG.
1: Oh, yes.
0: Yeah, so that... That was really bad, and still is bad. Also, Kirk Schilling is a terrible human being.
1: Yeah, that I forgot about that whole drama. That was that was bad.
0: Yes, it was extremely bad, in all ways possible. Just a, what a gigantic mess for the games industry in general. Uh, as for the last story, I, I think it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> I never got to play it. I would love to play it myself, though. Hell, you didn't get to play it? It's all right. Yeah, it's totally worth playing. It's more of an action game. There's a large cover-based element to it, but there's also some, uh, as I recall correctly, there's also a ta- tactical component to the way that the battles unfold. So yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it you know, tells a good story. Um, I think that it would ver- benefit quite a bit from a remaster on the Nintendo Switch. Yeah, I'd play it. Yep, absolutely. If I recall correctly, the motion controls actually f- uh, figure into it a little bit, so that might be a little awkward. Yeah, they'll find some way to patch them out. (laughs) They totally should, right? Screw motion controls. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they had their day.
0: Acts of the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Make sure to leave us a review if you enjoyed the podcast. And please subscribe to our newsletter, which goes out
1: every Wednesday. Nadia, what was the last uh, newsletter that you went out? Uh, I actually had a bit of a sad newsletter because I talked a bit about my cat, Cammy, who passed away this week. And, um, Cammy and I kind of bonded over, uh, Zelda, particularly the Twilight Princess. And, um, so I, I kind of wrote a lot, of, a little bit about that. And I've actually had several people write to me and, and kind of thank me for that. So thank you for reading it and, uh, for, uh, you know, just kind of being with me there on that journey. Yes, I'm really sorry. I think Cammy has made a few ca- cam- cameo appearances
0: on X of the Blood God in the past. She probably has. I think she has to meow and say hi. In any case, you can also follow us on social media. I'm on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. We will be back next week with more coverage of our favorite genre, role-playing games, where we will be returning to our RPG quest, among other things. But until then, for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening, and until next time, happy adventuring.